Hi, welcome to this week's Parsha Shir. I know it's a double Parsha this week, Vayaka Pekude, but today we're going to look at just different aspects of Parsha's Pekude, and that's what we're going to focus on. Parsha's Pekude begins, Ele Pekude Mishkan, Mishkan Ha'edus Asher Pukad Alpi Moshe. These are the reckonings, these are the accounts of the Mishkan, the Mishkan of testimony, which were drawn up at Moshe's request. And what follows is a detailed breakdown of the precious metals that were donated for use in the construction of the Mishkan. The exact weight is meticulously recorded for posterity. First of all, there's the gold. There was 29 talents and 730 shekels in weight of gold donated, which amounts to 2,193 pounds in modern measurements, or just under, or just over one US ton. Or if you're metric, that's 995 kilograms, which at today's prices, listen to this, we are currently in March 2023, it's about 50 million US dollars worth of gold. Not bad, I think, for a fundraiser from former slaves in the middle of a desert. Not bad at all. The silver is also mentioned. There was 100 talents plus 1,775 shekels in weight of silver that was donated, which is just under four tons. In pounds, that's almost 7,600 pounds of silver. And then there's the copper. There were 70 talents plus 2,400 shekels in weight of copper that was donated, which is about two and a half tons or 5,338 pounds of copper. Altogether, there was over seven and a half tons of precious metal collected and then used for the Mishkan. And just to be clear, the Mishkan was a temporary sanctuary that needed to be transported lugged around through the desert as the Jewish people moved around. It's really quite incredible if you think about it. Now, in the psukim that record the accounts, the Torah tells us exactly what the silver was used for and exactly what the copper was used for. But there is no record in these psukim about what the gold was used for. Why is this information missing from the accounts? The Kliyoka picks up on this point and he introduces his answer by mentioning that there is a debate among the commentaries about whether the word Ele, the beginning of the parasha, which doesn't have a connecting vov, it's not Ve'ele, applies to the work that was done on the Mishkan mentioned in the previous parasha, Vayakel, or if because there is no connecting vov, it's not Ve'ele, it applies to what is going to be mentioned in the parasha it begins, which is namely Pikude. The Kliyokos says, Alkein levavi yidme loimar. Therefore, let me tell you what my own instinct is about to uh, is about the answer to this topic, and also why I think that the Torah doesn't talk about what was done with the gold, at least at this stage. These are the reckonings, applies to what was done in Parshas Vayakel. Since they'd already finished working on the general aspects of the Mishkan and everything that they had to do with the silver and the copper had already been done. Moshe was very happy that the copper um, uh, was and the silver work was finished, and he was also eager to give an accounting to show that everything collected had been used up, so that you know there would be no suspicion of him having taken a cut. He wanted to show that every ounce of copper and silver being used to make them items for which they were needed. But as far as the gold was concerned, he couldn't give an answer just yet, since they'd not yet made the priestly clothes, which are discussed in this parsha. Uh, and they, as we know, had gold in them. The Kliyoka asks a good question on his own explanation. If the reason the accounting was done on the silver and copper was because it was all used up, why didn't Moshe do the same thing when the gold was all used up? Why didn't he do an accounting then? The answer 
is in the Medrash brought by Rabbeinu Bachya on this week's Parsha. When Moshe wanted to give a final accounting, 1,775 shekels of the gold was missing, and he just couldn't work out what he'd done with these 175, 775 shekels of gold. He didn't know what had happened. It was a mystery. And he was beside himself with anxiety. And then suddenly a heavenly voice cried out and said, And from the 1,775, he made hooks for the pillars to fulfill what it says in the Posig Mamidba, Perik Yudbeis, Posig Zain, Not so my servant Moshe, who is the most faithful in my house. It seems, says the Kliyokar, that the author of the Medrash felt that the two unnecessary haze, it says, Ve'es ha'elef u'shva ha'meos, and it should have said, Ve'es elef u'shva meos, they must be there because Moshe forgot and did not know what he'd done with the 1,775 shekels, and the nation was accusing him of having pocketed it all for himself. Unbelievable, I know, but there it is. Even Moshe Rabbeinu could be under suspicion. Anyway, that's why a divine voice rang out and said Moshe took nothing. He used the gold to make hooks for the pillars. And that happened. Uh, after that happened, the nation was quite embarrassed, as they should be, for having suspected Moshe of being a thief. And they said, don't worry, we don't need to see an accounting. We trust you. Hashem testified and said, Avdi Moshe on who Moshe is a paragon of virtue. The Sfas Emes quotes Medrash Rabbah on the beginning of the Parshas, the beginning of Parshas Bekudei, about this accounting that was done by Moshe. The Medrash references a posuk in Mishle, Ish emunois rabrochis, a man of integrity will increase blessings. Who is this Ish emunois? asks the Medrash. Who is this man of integrity? says the Medrash, Zer Moshe. The posuk in Mishle is talking about Moshe Rabbeinu. This Medrash is quite enigmatic, says the Sfas Emes, who goes on to explain that the Medrash is trying to deal with a basic problem. Chazal, in Masechus Tanis Daf Heyom tell us that counting things can cause them harm. Similarly, anything that is kept out of sight, in other words, not counted, is more likely to flourish. Now, if that is the case, why did the Mishkan have to undergo an accounting process. Also puzzling is this. Why does the Medrash believe that Ish Emunois is referring to Moshe Rabbeinu? The Sfas Emes gives two answers. You'll recall that God refers to Moshe as Becholbesi Nemon Hu. And Neemon suggests Emunois, same word. And that's the connection. The other possible answer is that the word Emunois is similar to the Hebrew word for counting, moine. He's an ish emunois, he's a counter, he's an accountant. Either way, Moshe Rabbeinu, Chazal, saw him as the exemplar of ish emunois. But why did the Mishkan go through an accounting process if it is potentially damaging? The Sfat Emes finds an answer in the Zohar. Using a quote from the Zohar, he explains that the enumeration recounted in our parsha, had a special, a unique feature. As I said earlier, it was Moshe Rabbeinu himself who did the counting. For this reason, the accounting didn't come with any kind of negative effect. On the contrary, it came with a blessing. 
Why? Because Moshe uniquely, specifically, was an Ish Emunois. And when Moshe Rabbeinu is doing the counting, Rav Brochos, he brings with him an abundance of blessings. Okay, sounds beautiful, but how exactly does it work? Why, if Moshe is doing the counting, is it a blessing? Many blessings. The Sfasemes explains the reason that counting objects can be harmful. He tells us what's the problem. He says that counting means giving each item in the set a number of its own. But having a number of its own separates the item being counted from the others in the set. In this situation of pirud, separation, if each item is separate, it has no mutual support. On the other hand, a batch of uncounted objects constitutes a klal, and each component of the klal draws strength from being part of a larger group. Do you hear what's going on? When Moshe Rabbeinu was counting the objects that were used for the Mishkan, his involvement brought them closer to their shoyush, to their source. And proximity to Hashem brings with it a happier state of being, which means blessings, rav brachos. Although, it's easy to understand how the pirud klal dynamics work, dynamic works with people. But for inanimate objects, what is that all about? One possibility is that it is there to teach us an important lesson, to drive home the point about Pirud and Klal. That's why God created the same pattern into the world of inanimate objects. You shouldn't count anything for that reason. Parshas Pikudei is the final parsha of five parshas found in the second half of Sefer Shmois, which deal with the details of how the Mishkan was built. The Pasuk says, Vayar Moshe es kol ha-malocha, v'hinei osu oisa ka'asher tziva Hashem kein osu v'yavarech oisa Moshe. Moshe saw all the work, and behold, they had done it exactly as Hashem had commanded, and Moshe blessed them. Rashi quotes Chazal, who says that the blessing Moshe gave them was this, Yirotzen chetishre shechina b'masi yedeichem. May the divine presence of God Rest in the work of your hands. Now, now that everything was done and dusted, the blessing should be that God should rest his presence on the people and on the Mishkan. Excuse me, but surely it would have been much more logical to give the Jewish people this bracha at the outset of the building of the Mishkan. Why did Moshe Rabbeinu save this blessing for the end of the process? Makes no sense. The answer is alluded to in the Posuk from Tehillim, Miyale Bahar Hashem, or Miyokum Bim Koim Who will go up onto the mountain of God and who will rise up to the holy place? All the commentaries say that this Posuk is a hint to the fact that there are two different challenges in life. There is the challenge of who will go up onto the mountain of Hashem. This is directed that those who need to find the strength of character and the drive to go up to ascend the mountain of God. But there is an even greater challenge than getting up there. Do you know what the greatest challenge of all is? Once you're already at the top of the mountain, to be able to stay up there. Now that's really tough. The reality is, it is easier to climb to the top of the mountain of God than it is to remain there. It gets boring, even in paradise. 
every day, every day, holiness, perfection, sublime. Do you know what? Monotony sets in. Remaining there is much tougher than going up there in the first place. You know what you feel like on Motsi Yom Kippur? Super spiritual, holy, ready for the new you. Yom Kippur inspired you and you got to the top of the mountain. But how do you feel right now in the middle of March? Are you feeling at the top of the mountain right now? Hmm? Not sure about that, are you? It's like that with everything. Even the most perfect of situations are hard to maintain because there's no longer any struggle. That's our biggest challenge, our biggest struggle in life. We cannot allow atrophy to set in. It's not just about who will climb up the mountain of God to reach the peak. It's much more about who will remain standing in his holy place. The Mishkan project was no different. Everyone was so enthusiastic. Remember what had just happened. They'd just fallen down so low with the sin of the golden calf. God threatened to wipe them out. Moshe Rabbeinu prayed on their behalf. And finally, on Yom Kippur, he came down again from Mount Sinai, from Har Sinai, with the second set of Luchos. They started building the Mishkan on the day after Yom Kippur. Everyone participated. There was an endless supply of adrenaline. There was a surplus of emotion. It was the perfect state of who will climb up the mountain of Hashem. Now, in Pikude, the Mishkan is fully built. It's two and a half months later and atrophy sets in, begins to set in. The excitement is wearing off. Now it is time for day in, day out, a repetitive routine. Morning, evening, morning, evening. It never stops. It gets boring, even in paradise. We bring the same carbon tomid every day, twice a day. So Moshe Rabbeinu's bracha to them was, it remain, may it be God's will that his divine presence is going to remain. It's going to live in the work of your hands. Do you know what that bracha is really saying? It's saying, it's blessing the Jewish people. May the initial excitement be maintained throughout the Mishkan's daily routine. May you always feel the enthusiasm that you felt at the beginning of this process. We could all do with that blessing, that's for sure. As I've already said, Parshas Pikude begins the part of the Torah that deals with the construction of the different parts of the Mishkan. After all, the individual components of the Mishkan had been made. They were brought to Moshe for him to inspect. And Rashi quotes the Medrash Tanchuma, which explains that the reason why the components of the Mishkan were brought to Moshe to inspect was actually because no one else was able to assemble all the pieces together and turn them into a Mishkan. It was like you know, pieces of a puzzle, a 3D model, but no one could put the model together. The Mishkan was too cumbersome, too complicated, too heavy, too convoluted. And although every piece was there and all the people who made the pieces were there, <coughs> they just couldn't do it. Meanwhile, Moshe had not been involved in any part of the construction of the Mishkan's bits and pieces. He'd let Betzalel and his team get on with their work. But, and this is why things turned out as they did, this was why no one knew how to put the pieces together. Hashem reserved the honor of the Mishkan's final assembly for Moshe Rabbeinu himself. Although, great honor as it was, he was only one guy, he was only one man. How was he going to do it? I mean, have you ever tried to put up one of those prefab sukkahs on your own? I know it looks simple in the speeded up video on YouTube, 
but no one is able to do it on their own. You need at least two people. And here, Moshe was expected to do it by himself, and he was an old man. He, he thought it was impossible, and he told God, I can't do it. God said to Moshe, just try. Put in the effort. Do your best to put it up. And Moshe did that. And you know what? Miraculously, the Mishkan assembled itself. All Moshe did was touch the different pieces, and they flew into place. And yet, he receives the credit for having put up the Mishkan. We can learn something, something very important from this Medrash. Do you know what the Medrash is teaching us? That regardless of the difficulty of the spiritual task that we face, we must always make the effort and at least try to do it. Of course, in real life, for ordinary day-to-day -day things, it is results that count. But in spirituality, do you know what counts? Do you know what God is really looking for? God is looking for effort. He's not looking for results. And do you know why? Because results in the spiritual realm are up to God. Effort? That's up to you. You know, when we finish a Masechta and we make a Siyam, there's a long paragraph that we recite. And one of the things that we say is about a comparison between ordinary folk and people who study Torah. Anu amelim vehem amelim, we say. We, the learners of Torah, we work hard. And they, the ordinary folk, they also work hard. But do you know what the difference is? Anu amelim umekablim schar. We work hard and we get a reward. Heim amelim ve'enom mekablim schar. They work hard and they don't get any reward. All their hard work is wasted. They get nothing while we benefit from our hard work. Everybody asks the same question about this statement. Really? They get nothing? What are you talking about? People who work hard get something out of it at the end. They, are, they get paid. They may have built something. They may have completed a project. Of course they're rewarded for their efforts. Everyone is rewarded for effort. Why are you saying, They work hard and they don't get the reward. It's simply not true. The answer is that we work in the spiritual realm. And what we get for effort far surpasses our ability, if you can call it that, to reach spiritual heights. It's a gift from God. But you have to be an Omel. You have to put the effort in. Then you can be a Makabal Schar. You will get the best reward ever. The Medrash records a very interesting conversation between Moshe, the contractor for the Mishkan, and Betzalel, the project manager. When God told Moshe to make a Mishkan, the Medrash says, Moshe came and told Betzalel and asked him to manage the project. What is this Mishkan? Betzalel asked. So Moshe responded, it's a place where God can rest his presence and teach Torah to the Jewish people. And where will the Torah be placed? Betzalel asked. After we build the Mishkan, we'll make an Oroim. Rabbeinu Moshe. Is that honor for the Torah? To build the Oran later? Rather, let us make an Oran and afterwards let's make the Mishkan. Now, it's a lovely Medrash. The problem is, it directly contradicts the Gomorrah's version of events. The Gomorrah in Brochus, Nun Hei, Omud Aleph, says that Betzalel got his name because he was so wise. Why was he wise? 
Because when God told Moshe to tell B'Tzalah, build me a mishkan, orain, and utensils, Moshe went and reversed the order, saying, build an orain, utensils, and the mishkan. Turned it round. To which B'Tzalah responded, Moshe Rabbeinu, the way of the world is for a man to build a house and afterwards to bring his utensils inside. And you're telling me to build the orain utensils and then the mishkan? Really? Where exactly am I going to put the utensils that I make before the mishkan is built? I think that you've got the order wrong. God said this, build a mishkan and an oran and utensils. And Moshe said to Betzalel, perhaps you were in the shadow of God, Betzel El. And that's how you know what God said. Betzalel, Betzel El. This Gemara is the exact opposite of the Medrash. In the Gemara, Betzalel is the one who saved the oran for last insisting that the Mishkan be built first. But in the Medrash, B'tzalel builds the Oran first, and then the Mishkan. So which is it? They can't both be right. The Medrash about B'tzalel insisting that the Oran is made first begins with a dispute between Rabbi Huda and Rabbi Nechemiah. They were debating the order of creation, actually. What was created first? The light, light, or the earth? Rabbi Huda says the light came first. He gives a parable. A king wants to build a palace. And the spot, the place where he wants to build it, is completely dark. So what does he do? He lights candles and lamps so he can set the foundation for the palace. In other words, light comes first and then the earth. Rabbi Nehemiah says, not at all. First the king builds the palace and then he lights it up. But truthfully, the comparison, the analogy in the parable is not very precise. In the example, light is the means by which the king achieves his goal and builds his palace. But in the Nimshal, the real-life scenario that the example is meant to illustrate, the earth is not the purpose of creation. Rather, the purpose of creation is the light that illuminates man's life. Earth is just the vehicle to uncover this infinite light. The light needs to be the palace, then, which is the earth which must mean that the Medrash is not teaching us about light and the earth, and instead it is teaching us about a parallel scenario to the earth's creation, namely the Mishkan. The Mishkan's creation is a spiritual microcosm of the creation of the universe. According to Rabbi Huda, God first creates the light and only afterwards the earth, namely the Mishkan. And this is exactly the argument of Betzalel in the Medrash. The Torah is the purpose of the Mishkan. And it is the spiritual essence of life by which man discovers a meaning for his existence. The Mishkan is the vessel by which this truth is grasped, but its physical confines cannot match the pure and faultless image of absolute light. It's obvious the Torah comes first, not the Mishkan. But Moshe Rabbeinu feels otherwise. Only Moshe can put up the Mishkan. Do you know why? Because he is the only one who reflects with his physical being the perfect truth of God's world. Even the biggest tzaddikim need to combat their physical desires or at least accommodate them. Not so Moshe. Moshe Rabbeinu the man is indistinguishable from his holy soul. For him, even the physical actions of this world are an expression of God's will in every way, shape and form. That's why Moshe Rabbeinu identifies with Rabbi Nehemiah. The Mishkan comes first. You can't have a Torah without a pure vessel to receive it. Moshe reflects a higher world. He is uncorrupted and undistorted. He is the only one who can put up God's permanent home on earth. While B'Tzalel builds a Mishkan in order to see the light, Moshe self-radiates with light. He shines, he illuminates. He is the Mishkan, ready-made. 
for the Torah. But what about the Gemara in Brochus, in which Bitzalel says we need to build the Oren last and the Mishkan first? Isn't that the opposite of what we just said? The answer is, it's true that Moshe was a pure repository of God's word, but it is for this reason that his message needs to be revised. While the Torah is pure and perfect, our world is far from pure and perfect. And while the Torah needs no improvement, man certainly does. In the Gemara version of events, Moshe tells Bezalel to build the Oren Habris because the Torah is the purpose of creation. The Mishkan is a postscript. Why focus on the postscript before you've written the letter? That's Moshe through and through. But Bezalel is not Moshe. Of course he's very special, but he's very special on a human level. He knows that this world is a process, an ongoing operation to reveal a hidden truth. The world is a Mishkan, and it is God's will that we get the world into a better spiritual place first, before we can use it to house the highest spiritual force known to man, namely the Torah. If we would be able to achieve the ultimate in the goals of creation, this world would cease to exist, because there would be no point to it. But the shadow of our physical existence hides this overpowering light. And our job is to make a space in the darkness for the light to shine. We need to build the Mishkan first. And then we can focus on the Oren Habris, on the Ark of the Covenant. That's why Moshe said to Betzalel, perhaps you were in Betzalel, in the shadow of God, in the darkness, looking for God. And that's how you know. The concept of Betzalel defines who Betzalel is. He is the ultimate everyman, the Jew seeking God, trying to turn his or her world into a temple so that he or she can emerge from God's shadow into the light. We are all made Betzalem, Betzalem Elohim. Betzalel is our alter ego. He is our avatar. He is our example of what to be. I would like to end off with a nice idea from the Baal Shem Tov. One of the key themes in Pikudei is the idea of precise accounting and transparency in the use of resources. The Israelites, the Jewish people, were commanded to donate materials and contribute their skills to the construction of the Mishkan, and every contribution was carefully recorded and accounted for. The Baal Shem Tov taught that this meticulous attention to detail was not just about accounting for physical resources, but also about accounting for our spiritual resources. In other words, just as the Jewish people were called upon to contribute their physical resources to the construction of the Mishkan, we, all of us, are called upon to contribute our spiritual resources to the building of a holy community, a Mishkan. The Baal Shem Tov says that this means being mindful of the ways in which we use our time, our energy and our talents to serve others and to build a better world, using the Torah and the mitzvahs as our guiding light. And just as every contribution to the Mishkan was carefully recorded and valued, we need to carefully consider and value every act of kindness, every prayer and every moment of spiritual connection that we have in our lives. Imagine that. Imagine we kept a ledger of every time we davened and it hit the spot. Or, or we had a special Shabbos. Or we did a special act of Tzedakah. And then we do our mitzvah returns every year. And we look at all the line items. Wouldn't that be something? Wouldn't that be amazing? 
For the Baal Shem Tov, Pikude was a reminder of the importance of mindfulness and accountability in all aspects of our lives, both physical and spiritual. And I think that's what Pikude should mean for us too. Thank you so much for watching. Thank you so much for listening. We will leave it here for now. Thank you.